Well, when my wife and I returned from our honeymoon, we moved straight into married student housing at Dallas Seminary, where we lived next door to a saint named Phyllis. Phyllis was a delightful lady, always positive and encouraging. She bequeathed to us the world's greatest chocolate chip recipe, uh, chocolate chip cookie recipe that y'all are still benefiting from today. Phyllis even went so far as to volunteer her body to let my wife, who was in nursing school, practice her IV starts on, which her husband would not have done for any price under the sun. Phyllis was amazing. And one year after we met her, Phyllis married a missionary named Alan, and the two headed off to Mexico to Guanajuato to do uh, missions work. And seven years later, we got word that they were leaving the mission field because God had given them another one. God had led them to adopt six siblings, ages 2 to 12, out of an orphanage. And people thought they were crazy. Uh, They were in their late 40s by this point. They had never been parents. This was going to be legally complicated. It was going to be expensive. It was going to require them to leave Mexico to come to America so that the children who had had a horrible background could have resources to help them recover from all that they had been traumatized by early on. And so everybody thought they were nuts and a great sacrifice to themselves. Phyllis and Alan expanded their family to take in these people out of a terrible situation and to bring them into a home filled with love that could heal them and give them hope. And that's what our message is about this morning. At the end of Mark chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk about him expanding his family, even though that meant people thinking that he was nuts, (laughs) even the opposition and the slander of his own peers and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And of course, ultimately we know that he went to the cross to be able to deliver us from the bondage we were in and to bring us into a family that could bring healing and hope to our lives. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, where we will be beginning in verse 20. And the text says that he came home, uh, that is Capernaum, likely the house of Peter and Andrew, which was Jesus' base of operations for his Galilean ministry. So he would be in Capernaum, he would go out on a preaching tour, then he would come back, and he's back home now. And the crowd gathered again. Because everywhere Jesus went, he drew a crowd. One of the running motifs in the book of Mark, in fact, the word crowd occurs 32 times in the Gospel of Mark. The masses, the people, were always pressing in to hear Jesus, to see Jesus, to watch him perform miracles, and hopefully to heal them of their own afflictions. And once again, the crowd comes, and this time, they were so large, so pressing, so insistent, that he couldn't even eat a meal. There was no time to take a break. He was now neglecting himself to serve them, which was always Jesus' way. Uh, A few chapters later on, we're going to see Jesus wanting to take a break with his disciples. So they go across the lake to have just a small private retreat in the wake of John the Baptist's martyrdom. And there's the crowd waiting for him. And you can imagine, finally we get a break. You show up at the vacation site and there's all the masses waiting for him on the other side. So what did Jesus do? He taught them. He fed them. He cared for them because Jesus came to call sinners and the sinners were responding to that call. And so he served them even when it meant sacrificing himself. And when his own people, that is his family back in Nazareth, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he's lost his senses. (laughs) So 
Capernaum was on a trade route. So if you were going from Jerusalem, uh, moving northeast, you would pass through Nazareth. And they're coming with reports of Jesus and all the wonderful things that he's doing and the crowds that are pressing in on him. And now his family is saying, we've got to put a stop to this. This Messiah complex has gone on quite far enough and we need to go down there and seize him because that's what the word take custody means. It's used in other places in the Gospels of arresting, of physically taking someone, probably to bring him back to Nazareth where they can get him under control again. Uh, his family is named later in the Gospel of Mark. It says in Mark 6.3 that the carpenter, Joseph's son, was the son of Mary as well as the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters, so at least two sisters, plural, and possibly more. And they're not proud of Jesus. When they hear of how hard-pressed he is, they don't go down to help him, to assist him, to serve him. Instead, they don't believe in him. And in fact, they think he's lost his mind, which must have been a grievous thing for Jesus. It's hard enough to go and have all the opposition that's rising and growing, but to have your own family disbelieve you and reject you and to want to take custody of you. Uh, this actually happened to Thomas Aquinas that when he was at the University of Naples and decided to become a Dominican monk, his influential family thought that he had lost his mind and was abandoning their hopes for him. And so they sent the brothers to arrest him and they hid him away in a family castle for a year trying to make him change his mind. And when month after month he wouldn't crack or back down, the brothers actually hired a prostitute to bring into the room and to try to disqualify him from ministry. And the story goes that Aquinas grabbed a burning brand from the fire, chased the woman out of the room, drew a mark of a cross on the door, and at least according to legend, never struggled with lust again in his life. But here we have the family physically taken captive of this great saint because the guy's gone crazy. He's an embarrassment to us. And there's probably some here that have had that happen. That you came to Christ, you committed yourself to the Lord, and your family thought you were a fanatic, that you joined a cult. Um, I was talking to one brother from India who, when he came to Christ in a radical way, he went back home to visit his family who had disowned him, and they had cut his face out of all the pictures. And so he went back home, and there's all the others, and he had been removed from the family. And in certain traditions, there are so-called honor killings or shame killings where there are people whose life is at risk and some who have lost their lives because the family has killed them and done them harm for coming to Christ. And so this is tragically not a new phenomenon. But in Jesus' case, his family says, he's lost his mind. We're going to go down and take captive because he's lost his senses. And now the scene is going to shift as they're beginning to move their way southwest the scene shifts to Capernaum to another group of people. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, a scribe is an expert in the Mosaic law. Uh, we might liken them to a constitutional attorney. Here's the book that our people and our nation governs itself by, and we're the experts in that book. And they have been enemies of Jesus from the beginning. They are the ones that when Jesus first said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, they reasoned in their heart, that's blasphemy. That when Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house, they said, who is this man that would eat with the unrighteous? We're going to see them again and again in the gospel. And by the time we get to the end, they are among those plotting to betray Jesus, to arrest him, to have him falsely condemned, 
and then to crucify him. Jesus did not play by their rules, and so they wanted to get rid of him. But this scribe, this group of scribes, is different because they've come from Jerusalem. This is an official delegation from the capital, not just the local scribes in the Capernaum or the Galilean area. So if you get a car drive up from the constable, that's concerning. But if there's a group from Austin, that's more concerning. And if they've come from D.C., it's probably time to go immediately to an attorney. So now these people have come from the capital to put an end to Jesus. Because look at what they're saying. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out demons by the rulers of demons. So they didn't come to listen. They didn't come to investigate. They didn't come to explore. They came to begin a slanderous campaign against Jesus to undermine what they can't deny. So no one is denying that Jesus does in fact have the power to cast out demons. No one can deny that he is in fact exercising these horribly possessed people because the facts are plain. There's too many testimonies. There's too many witnesses. It's undeniable. So instead, they tried to discredit him with two slanderous accusations. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, it's a phrase that means the Lord of the house. Uh, it's the only time this occurs or the first time this occurs in either Jewish or Christian literature. Some liken it to a Canaanite deity. It probably does mean Lord of the house, which we see in the second part of the verse is going to be associated with Satan himself. So in other words, Jesus has power over demons because he is possessed by a demon. In fact, they go on to say he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. What he's doing isn't divine, it's diabolical. And Jesus is going to respond by pointing out the absurdity of their accusations and then warning them of the blasphemy of their allegations and then explaining to them what's really going on. Look beginning in verse 23. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. So Jesus points out that if Satan, who had possessed these people, was now giving him the power to send out the demons that he had sent to possess these people, that's counterproductive. That's self-destructive. A nation doesn't send out the Air Force to bomb its army that has just taken a piece of ground. A Navy doesn't send its subs to torpedo the ships that have just gained control of a waterway. That's self-defeating, that's self-destructive. And Satan is wicked, but he's not foolish or suicidal. And so this makes no sense for you to make this claim. In fact, what's going on, verse 27... He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. If you're going to rob a person while he's at home, you better be powerful enough to overpower the person so that you can steal what you've come to steal. What's actually going on with these demons being cast out is Jesus has come and overpowered Satan, the strong man. He has bound him, and now he is freeing these people who are being terrorized and tormented by him because he came to set the captives free. Jesus has come to liberate what Satan had dominion over. 
The true significance isn't that the kingdom of Satan is divided within itself and is falling from within. It's being conquered from without. And you'll remember that the very first miracle that Jesus is recorded doing in the Gospel of Mark is he cast out a demon. If you remember, right after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit sent him in the wilderness to confront Satan. So all the while that we're seeing human beings interact with Jesus and he's teaching and he's healing and he's talking to them, there's a supernatural element behind the scenes that's going on is the evil one is being undone. That Jesus came to overthrow the devil and to free us from his grasp. And if you want to know what's really going on with this untold, unimaginable amount of people being freed from demonic possession, it's God sent his son to free us and to liberate us because he loves us. That's the true story behind this. And then he gives a warning. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now he begins with an encouraging word. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. That's tremendously encouraging, isn't it? That God's grace is so complete, that the gospel is so powerful, that Christ's sacrifice is so atoning, that any sin can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter what immoralities you're guilt of, no matter what false religions you may embrace for a season, no matter if you've strayed from God, there's nothing you can do that can separate you from the grace of God once you're in Jesus Christ. When I grew up in a legalistic church background, my understanding of the gospel was baptism forgave us of our sins up to that point, but after that we were on our own. And having been washed clean, I was now responsible to keep the canvas clean. But when I read my Bible, I knew every day that I didn't do that. And so here were new sins that I was committing, and here were good things that I should have been doing that I wasn't, and I lived in terror of God. Because I kept thinking, that's the sin that was one toke over the line. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's the one that put me over. But I'd already been baptized, and I'd already taken my silver bullet. I had the one-shot chance at cleansing, and I blew it. And I lived in fear of God until I sat down with someone who said, what an arrogant statement to think that you have anything to do with your salvation, that you could be so good as to earn it or keep it, or that you could be so bad as to not be salvable or to lose it. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And once you acknowledge that you are a sinner and ask Jesus to be your Savior and you are placed in Christ, then nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 8, neither height nor depth nor angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing, including yourself, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But then he gives this really scary statement that there is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the one who does this never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. In other words, their guilt is unforgivable or unpardonable, and therefore their suffering will be eternity because there's no one to absolve them of that punishment. Now, this has frightened a number of Christians through the years. Now, have I done this? Have I blasphemed God in a way that can now distance me from the grace of God in Christ? Now, there's actually a website out there that has people deconverting. 
And they have these poor people who grew up in Christians' homes who used to identify themselves with Christ and now have moved beyond it and they blaspheme God online and they curse Christ online. And it's terrible and it's terrifying. And your soul shudders for these poor people that have gone so far as to want to desecrate the one that was sent to die for them. But is that unforgivable? Can we do something that separates us permanently from God? Fortunately, Mark specifies exactly what the sin is that comforts us today in verse 30. The reason Jesus said that in verse 29 is because they in verse 30 were saying, He has an unclean spirit. The scribes who knew the law intimately, who were faced with incontrovertible evidence that Jesus had power to cast out demons, was performing these wondrous miracles, weren't just saying once. They didn't just utter a simple sentence that was a slip that came out or something they said in a foolish moment, and that sentence separated them forever from God. They were continually saying. They had set themselves against Christ. In other words, God in the flesh, walking on earth, performing these irrefutable miracles. They have now sided themselves against Christ. They have said, we've come all the way from Jerusalem not to consider, not to explore, not to ask if these things might be true, but to begin a campaign saying all of that work that is done by the Holy Spirit is diabolical, is really the work of Satan. In other words, I don't think that is a sin that can be committed today. It was something very specific to that time that was to this group of people, and Jesus warns them, you need to be very careful about what you're saying. Blasphemies against God, blasphemies against the Son, blasphemies against the Spirit, our sins against God, but it says that all sins are forgivable in Christ. The issue with someone who has come to this level of hard-heartedness is if you truly are setting yourself against Christ, if you truly are saying that all of His miraculous deeds are of the devil, then you are not in a frame of soul or spirit that you will ever come to Christ for forgiveness. You're never going to come to Him and say, Jesus, forgive me, if you've reached this point. And therefore, you will die in your sins and you will suffer eternally for them. And now the story rejoins the family in verse 31. And this is the first instance of what commentators call a Markin sandwich. So if you want to impress your friends, the technical word for it is an intercalation or a framing tech work technique. But sandwich is much memorable. I thought about having a cute slide of Mark's sandwich shop and having these nine different sandwiches that he has because there's nine of these. But basically what Mark does, and it's one of his characteristics as a writer, is he'll start to tell a story, and then he'll interrupt himself to tell another story, and then he'll go back and finish the original story. And he does this at least nine times. So the story started with the family leaving Nazareth, and if we went straight from verse 21 to verse 31, it's seamless. It, it fits perfectly. We just had the two bread together, and we took out the filling. But the purpose of the filling in the Mark and Sandwiches is to help us understand what's going on in the other story. In this case, the opposition against Christ from his own family that said he's lost his mind. From the official scribes in Jerusalem, we're going to begin a slanderous campaign against him. Is going to contrast with the new expanded family that Christ came to redeem and die to create. Look at verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, 
they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So there's kind of a funny irony here. Those that are closest to Christ can't get to Christ because of all the people crowding around Christ. There's the outsiders and the insiders, and the outsiders are those who don't believe what he's saying about himself and God. And the insiders are those who do believe and are hungrily gathering what's at his feet. And so they send word to the front, your family's here, your family's here, your family's here, your family's here. And what would you expect Jesus to do? Hey, I'm sorry, I've got to take the break. My family's here. Or I'd like everyone to meet my family. Or it's Queen Mary. Let her join me up front. He does none of those things. Instead, what he says is, he asked a puzzling question in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now that would seem to be a fairly obvious question. It's Mary, there's no mention of Joseph because he's likely deceased by now. There's the four brothers who we know from the Gospel of John did not believe in him yet. There may have been the sisters here because he mentioned sisters later on. You would expect that this is a nonsensical question because clearly who the family is. But he asked it to draw our attention to the new family he's going to identify himself with. Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Now that would have been shocking to the family and maybe even a bit hurtful, hopefully a bit eye-opening. An encouraging word when we get to Acts chapter 1 and we see the people waiting and praying for the Holy Spirit to fall, Mary is there with them and Jesus' brothers are there with them. And in fact, James and Jude in our New Testament were written by Jesus' half-brothers. So they are going to see the light eventually, but not yet. This might have been shocking to the apostles who had just been appointed, the twelve, who may have thought that they were in the inner ring. It certainly would have been shocking to the crowd that whoever they were, whatever their background, Jesus was now identifying them with him in a unique way. Have you ever wished you were part of a different family? And, and if you can say it, have you ever wished you were part of a better family? Uh, not everybody grew up in a pleasant home. And many people grew up in really without a family practically. Uh, some grew up in very angry households, some in cold households. And when you look at a restaurant or you come to the holidays and you hear about people having family gatherings, there are people this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, who will not be with their family on the holidays. Or there are those who are already dreading and praying about seeing their family again for the holidays. Not everyone is blessed with a good family. And Jesus gives us an opportunity to join the best family. He's going to throw open the doors and say, don't just come over for Christmas, but I am willing to embrace you as my brother and sister. And God is willing to adopt you as his son and daughter if you will embrace me and if you will commit yourself to doing God's will. Because that's the criterion, verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The book of John says, what is the will of God? To embrace the son that he sent. And what characterizes those that are children of God? We pray every day, your will be done. That we want to obey God because that's what's Christ's priority. Here we have a new expanded family of God that's open and available to anyone, no matter your background. It's an incredibly diverse family. 
It's comprised of people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. He specifically mentions sister and mothers because women are going to be welcome as well as men, which in a Jewish rabbinical context wouldn't have been something that you couldn't have been a female disciple of a rabbi. There was no opportunity for Barbara Streisand to begin to yet. And so Christ, though, says male and female, Jew and Gentile, young and old, rich and poor, wretched sinner or hidden sinner, coming from a good Christian family, or at the end of your life, like a thief on a cross saying, remember me when you come in your kingdom. God is willing to adopt anyone who is willing to embrace his son. And that's staggering. The privilege of that. Uh, I'm blessed to be a part of a very good family. And so there's more than 50 family members of mine that live in Denton. And we have a very strong family identity. My youngest brother created a website called Brown Town. And so the family members can go on and we can join Brown Town. Uh, my son had a school assignment where they had to create their own perfect society. And he created Brownsville. And if you were a Brown, you were in the upper ruling class. And if you weren't a Brown, you were part of the subjugated servant class. And we are proud of our family. But it's got flaws and it's got challenges and it's got sin and sinners. But not in God's family. In God's family, there's the perfect father. And there's the perfect older brother. And he puts his spirit within us to keep making us better and better sons and daughters and better and better siblings. The family of God is an eternal family that we have all lost loved ones that we hope to see in heaven someday if they are in Christ. But if you are a Christian, we are the forever family. And we will be with each other in the presence of God on a new heaven and earth in glorified bodies forever and ever. We're all equal. There's no rule of favored sons other than Jesus Christ and the family of God that we're all equally loved by the Father. We're all equally embraced by the Son. We're all equally welcome to approach the throne of grace with boldness. There's no younger children. There's no middle child. We're all equal in the eyes of God. We're all equally dependent on grace because none of us deserve to be in God's family. All of us are sinners. None of us deserved to be adopted. But God so loved us that He sent His Son to be rejected by His own family, to be rejected by His own people, to be slandered by the experts in the law that He wrote and that was all about Him, to eventually be betrayed and mocked and beaten and scourged and crucified because God loves you that much. He wants you in His family that much. And that opportunity is available to anyone at any moment if you'll say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. And in that moment, we are born again. We become a new creation in Christ. We receive a new nature. And just like our friends, when they adopted these six siblings, they received a new citizenship. In that moment when the adoption went through, they became American citizens. They got the blue passport. And now they had all these rights and privileges that they didn't before. And we become citizens of heaven when we become a child of God. And these poor kids received a better family. And they became heirs of everything that the parents had. And we also become part of a better family. And we become co-heirs with Christ. That you will inherit the earth someday, Jesus says. The glories of heaven available through Christ are ours in Jesus Christ. We have a wealthy family. 
and all of it is available to the children. And just as these six kids were delivered from a desperate situation, Jesus overpowered Satan to deliver us from our desperate situations, from our addictions, from our bondages, from our sin. And just like they took them out of a not nice orphanage and brought them to a new place and gave them a home and gave them everything they needed to heal and restore them, God also heals and restores us. That God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And the Holy Spirit works on us to make us more holy and more righteous and more humble and more loving, which makes our life better and all of our relationships better. And just like these kids became part of an extended family that now began to come to their birthday parties and give them Christmas gifts, we become a part of an extended family that extends all the way around the globe. And so when Nock and I went to Europe, we met people for the first time that we couldn't communicate with, but there was a kinship and an affinity and a connection that was immediate and tangible because we were Christians. And we had more in common with them than we do with certain non-family Christian members that we can't hardly talk to. Our family extends throughout time, from Abram and the patriarchs all the way to the last disciple who will be made. This is a glorious family to be part of, this new family of God. And it's one family. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are in the family of God, and that means that you are connected with every other Christian in the family. If a parent adopts a child, the existing siblings have to welcome and embrace that child. We don't get to reject those whom Christ accepts. If anyone is in Christ, then they are our brother and sister in Christ, and we must embrace them and welcome them and be loyal to them and to help them no matter who they are. Anyone that comes through that door and gives their life to Christ or knows Christ is family. And we're obligated to love them and to care for them. And also, we are obligated as God's family to love one another. It doesn't matter if we like them. It doesn't matter if they are like us. Our Heavenly Father cares very much how His children treat each other. And as Christians, we are expected and obligated and have the opportunity and the joy to love other Christians, irregardless of who they are. This is a wondrous family. My brother and I went on a mission trip to Mexico and we were working at an orphanage and Dave got an extended conversation with someone that had a really tragic story. And David said to him, the days ahead can be better than the days behind. I never forgot that phrase. The, the, those days behind are horrific and I have no idea what you've gone through. But the days ahead can be better than the days behind because even though your family didn't treat you well, and now you're in an orphanage, you don't feel like you have a family. But there is a perfect father who wants you to join his family. And he sent his son to redeem and deliver. And all you have to do is say yes, and instantly you will be adopted. And you will be welcomed. And you will become a child of the living God forever and ever and ever. So if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know God as your Heavenly Father, today would you join the family of God? Today, would you just admit, like all of us have done, I'm not perfect, but I need to get right with a perfect God. And the only way to do that is to accept the righteousness of the only perfect person who ever lived and to let his death pay the penalty for the sins that I committed. And when we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me, we're adopted into the family of God, and that can happen like this. And y'all can join us for the family meal in just about three minutes. So if you don't know Jesus, would today, would you join the family of God and let the days ahead be better than the days behind? And for those of us who do, 
when those people come, we have to welcome them. Those doors have to swing wide for every person. Red and yellow, black and white, pink and blue, purple, it doesn't matter. If they're in Christ, they're in the family of God, and we embrace them, and we welcome them, and we love them, and we serve them, because that's what Christians do. We love one another. We enjoy one another. So someone was asking, uh, we're trying to make plans for Thanksgiving, and it's complicated like for everybody because everyone's so busy. And Dave's comment on the email thread was, all I care about is lots of browns together. And that's right. It doesn't matter where we meet, doesn't matter what we eat, doesn't matter whether it's dinner or lunch. All we want is lots of family together. And that's what we get to do every Sunday, every Thursday, throughout our week. We're brought into the family to enjoy the family. Church is intended to be a blessing, not a burden. Coming to Sunday isn't checking a box. This shouldn't be an onerous obligation. It's a joyful thing to be with the saints of God. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to gather here and enjoy one another as we do. And to be grateful for that, and to protect that, to enjoy that, to welcome others into that, so that then we can go out into the neighborhood of the world and say, God sent his son to adopt you in his family. And if you'll receive the son, the father will adopt you. Come join the family of God. Come be part of the family of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your great love for us that you would sacrifice your only worthy son in order to save such worthless sons and daughters. Father, that you would take the only true one that ever lived and let him bear the penalty for all the unfaithful ones who followed after. We praise you that Jesus Christ was indeed strong enough to bind the strong man and to redeem us out of our bondage. We thank you that he was so loving as to sacrifice the love of his own family, the esteem of his own peers, ultimately his own life, and ultimately his father's approval in that dark moment when he was forsaken. And all so that we could join the family of God. Thank you for this wondrous, glorious, magnificent truth. Would we embrace it? Would we live it? And would we eagerly invite others to join it? And we'll ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.